G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. <music> Professor Marcia Langton is one of the most important voices in contemporary Australian Indigenous policy, the longtime Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies, and now also the Associate Provost at the University of Melbourne, Professor Langton is a well-known commentator on economic and social rights for Aboriginal Australians. She recently delivered the 2017 Dangala Kayela Oration at Shepparton in Victoria, where she squarely addressed the major economic hopes and challenges facing Indigenous Australians. From the margins to the mainstream, Indigenous recovery in rural Australia was her theme, and I'm delighted that Professor Marcia Langton has agreed to join me in the studio today to explore some of the issues that she raises in this oration. Marcia, welcome to The Policy Shop. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. So your oration makes the point that government policy in Australia for many generations was effectively genocidal. That was the logic of assimilation, of treating Aboriginal people as outcasts in multiple ways. And here I'm quoting from your oration. But you also point out there was a national change with the official end of these policies in 1972, which came five years after the granting of citizenship to Aboriginal Australians in the 1967 referendum. This is a difficult question to answer, but how much does that pre-1970s Australian history shape the current policy conversation about Aboriginal Australia? Well, I think of... of those assimilation policies and that culture, that Australian culture of assimilating Aborigines as in the DNA of policy. And it's very, very difficult to eradicate that from uh, current day policy making. So I was uh, an activist during the time that um, these New developments were proceeding under uh, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. And when I was an undergraduate student in the late 70s at the Australian National University, I met um, the members of the Council of Aboriginal Affairs that was appointed uh, by the pre-Whitlam government, and I, I forget exactly which one, I can't remember the which Prime Minister it was, to uh, investigate what should happen in Aboriginal affairs. So I met um, and became good friends with uh, Nugget Coombs. Um, I, I knew W.E.H. Stanner I, I, and I would talk to him often and also Charles Rowley. And so, of course, you know, their writings were very influential in the changes that were occurring at that time. But they came to several conclusions as a result of their time on that council. Well, first of all, you know, that there should be a department uh, of Aboriginal affairs. But that, I think it was Raleigh. Raleigh, yes, referred to the Aboriginal reserves and missions and fringe camps across Australia as a gulag archipelago. And, uh, using the Solzhenitsyn term. Mm, yeah. Using the Solzhenitsyn term, exactly. And so they could see very clearly that Aboriginal people were still trapped in the administrative regimes uh, set up uh, by the, the state jurisdictions and the, and the Northern Territory from the 19th century onwards. And uh, they 
saw the task as eradicating those administrative regimes that kept Aboriginal people outcasts. They didn't actually use the term marginalised. One of the title one of Rowley's books in his trilogy um, was Outcasts in White Australia. So um, that was very strong language. Mm. And uh, so it's that kind of thinking, the the extreme marginalisation and incarceration of Aboriginal people um, in a crazy um, assimilation experiment that locked Aboriginal people out of the economy, the workforce, uh, asset uh, accrual, um, people were not allowed to have savings accounts. They had no control over their own wages. They were lucky if they were able to keep their children in the family. So this is what the uh, the members of that council were responding to. And so their view was that this version of assimilation should end. And so they made all sorts of recommendations. They established various kinds of institutions to make the the spirit of the referendum, um, that is, the idea of full Aboriginal citizenship in Australia, uh, a reality. And you talk about this agenda in a way that suggests it was very influential in your own thinking as you worked out uh, how to approach these questions. I was one of those outcasts in in my childhood. Um, and I think I, I yeah, I was uh, still in high school in 1967 when the referendum occurred. But, you know, in 1969, I was at the uh, University of Queensland where I encountered in an extreme way the kind of, you know, racism, the eugenicist racism that underpinned those assimilation policies. In fact, you spent a lot of time in the road west of Kanamala where your grandmother was born uh, in those communities. Can you tell us a bit about that as a formative experience? Well, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, my living in a native camp and a you know series of shacks in my childhood and walking a long way into school every day. I didn't know anything else. I thought that was normal. But when the American civil rights movement and the Vietnam War started to be reported on televisions when I was in high school, I started to realize that um, what had happened in the in the United States of America, against which uh, Martin Luther King and others were working, um, particularly in order to dismantle a very similar regime, I realised that I had been caught up in that kind of regime, you know, essentially an apartheid regime. Um, and in Queensland, it was a formal apartheid, although perhaps not in other jurisdictions. And so um, in high school, it, it really hit me that there was a very formal, systematic, uh, racist machine operating um, and that the the justice that my elders wanted was a long way off and would require um, uh, some very good strategies. And so it was clear to me, even in high school, that the referendum was only one small step towards justice. So tell us about your honours thesis at ANU. I noticed at the time, in fact, I'd had, you know, first-hand experience of it, that the uh, police were, in New South Wales, were charging Aboriginal people with um, using foul language and resisting arrest 
to such an extent that we started to appear in the um, UN reports on incarceration. And uh, the police were pretty good at using foul language themselves, um, and so were most other Australians, I have to say. So, you know, it really stood out that there were places in Australia where the incarceration rates of Aboriginal people were starting to climb up there with the highest reported in the world. And in New South Wales, it seemed to me, and certainly that's what the evidence showed after I'd done the research, that the charging of Aboriginal people for using foul language was contributing to that very high imprisonment rate. Mm. So I wanted to get to the bottom of it, and I wrote my thesis about Aboriginal swearing and fighting and how that brought them into contact with the criminal justice system. And I uh, did a lot of research on um, traditional forms of swearing. There are very interesting traditional forms of swearing, much more interesting than swearing in English. Um, Some of it uh, as an accompaniment to sorcery or declaring a dispute um, to, you know, of course, insult other people, uh, but also joking, brother-in-law joking, um, the, you know, sort of customary relationships between particular kinds of affinal relations who are allowed to um, say outrageous things to each other, none of which I can repeat here, um, uh, as kind of required as a, as a part of the kinship relationship. So traditional Aboriginal swearing, and, and indeed, I mean, I'd heard plenty of it myself, but, you know, some, some of it was actually reported in the literature but in addition to that, there is a very traditional form of Aboriginal dispute processing that involves a form of duelling. I'd encountered it in various places, and so I entitled my thesis Medicine Square, which I thought was the best name. It comes from, it came from a friend of mine, a Yamaji friend of mine in Western Australia with whom I was studying because I was telling her about my work, and she said, oh, we call that Medicine Square. So it was a joke on Madison Square, yeah, yes. but, you know, you have to turn up in the square and, you know, slug it out with your enemy um, and take your medicine. With weapons or with bare hands? Uh, both. So traditionally there were weapons, um, but, you know, once you had uh, policing systems and, and, you know, carrying weapons was illegal unless uh, your weapons were registered and the likelihood of Aboriginal people getting their weapons registered was not very likely, was it? So this interest in justice and justice systems continued. In the 1989 Royal Commission on Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, um, you wrote a submission called Too Much Sorry Business you highlighted the enormous high death rates of Aboriginal males in custody uh, and you highlighted also the role of alcohol both in detention and in the increased incidence of deaths occurring. Mm-hmm. Was was it your studies that prompted you to um, get involved in this important argument? Yes. From memory, there were 12 deaths in the Northern Territory that came under the terms of reference of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Each one of them took place in a town along the Stewart Highway. That is, none of them took place on Aboriginal land on either side of the Stewart Highway, which bisects the Northern Territory. And I think in all but one of the cases, alcohol was involved. And like my studies back in the early 80s uh, at the ANU about Aboriginal swearing and fighting, 
as a way of ex- explaining the, you know, disastrous contact with the criminal justice system, but more particularly police. It was clear to me uh, that here was this encounter being repeated, but now here in the Northern Territory with the additional factor of excessive, and I did, of course, mention it in my thesis, discuss it in my thesis, the additional factor of excessive use of alcohol, high-risk drinking. It's now associated with, you know, Aboriginal encounters with the criminal justice system at a very high rate. And was this also part of your PhD at Macquarie University? No, I changed topics considerably because I, you know, it was traumatising working for the Royal Commission. I imagine. I went into prisons, police lockups. I interviewed families. I had a small team. We went, we did uh, field work in 30 communities and compiled the evidence. So the report was not just my submission, it was the submission of the en- entire team. Mm-hmm. Well, I did in fact start a PhD in the Northern Territory, but my principal informant was murdered. So it was pretty upsetting. So I moved to Queensland and I decided to look at an Aboriginal land tenure system. Mm-hmm. So this was in 1991 prior to the High Court decision in Mabo number two. Yep. But there was, a, you'll remember, the uh, the types of discussions there were in Queensland about the potential for the native title case to cause rack and ruin to the Australian way of life. Having worked for the Central Land Council for six or seven years and, you know, worked on land claims in the Northern Territory, I thought, well, you know, I must start to explain Aboriginal land tenure systems. And so I changed my topic. I was enrolled at Macquarie University and after the Mabo decision ended up at the Cape York Land Council and uh, did my fieldwork in Eastern Cape York and described the land tenure system in Eastern Cape York. So let's pursue Mabo because it was a very important turning point, not just in Australian policy, but in your own thinking about opportunities and ways out of the the traps that you were describing. Um, the native title decisions, and particularly the, the Mabo decision, allowed the possibility of Indigenous communities sharing in the wealth that was being generated from lands uh, that had traditionally been theirs. And by 2011-2012, uh, after you've been doing work on this for the, the Boyers, um, the total value of native title repayments by the mining industry was some $3 billion. The Minerals Council of Australia said this, and I quote, has produced unprecedented wealth creation opportunities for Indigenous peoples in regional and remote Australia. A too optimistic reading or a fair call? No, it's uh, actually a very conservative estimate of the, uh, the assets that native title groups have accumulated as a result of uh, settlement of native title issues with um, not just state and territory governments, but also corporations of various kinds. So what's been the implications for remote communities that have had access to this sort of flow? There are many different kinds of Aboriginal titles. There's, well, let's just give, divide them into two broad categories. There are fungible titles, that is titles that can be used in the marketplace uh, to leverage capital. So, you know, say, for instance, in the case of a, a person um, using a property to obtain a, a second mortgage or mortgaging their house to fund a, a business, usually mm-hmm. freehold or long-term leaseholds. 
And then there are non-fungible titles. Most Aboriginal titles are non-fungible. They can't be used in the marketplace. And that's the problem with native title. It's a non-fungible title. Because native title is recognition of a customary title. And reading down from common law decisions, uh, the view is that uh, customary titles uh, cannot be traded. Until uh, the Akuba case, Aboriginal people did not engage in economic activity, which is, of course, nonsense. But, you know, that there again, you see yeah. the eugenicist um, DNA in the Australian culture. You know, it's only very recently that even the common law has recognised the economic nature of Aboriginal society. So what changes would you like to see to Native Title to address this? I don't think you really have to change the Native Title Act. I think, um, you know, you can do it under Indigenous land use agreements or by agreement with um, states and territories. Um, and there are a couple of very interesting cases in the Northern Territory where people have established by agreement with the Commonwealth, um, which is the relevant government in this case, uh, that the underlying Aboriginal title, be it native title or an Aboriginal freehold title, remains untouched and unaffected, but layering over the top of the underlying Aboriginal title, a long-term lease which can be used as a, a fungible title for housing allotments and other kinds of um, long-term leases for you know businesses and so on. Um, so it that's happened at uh, in the case of Gunyangara or Ski Beach in um, northeast Arnhem Land and also at Mutajulu. So there are two examples of how it can be done, but there are other ways of doing it as well. I think oh, I'd like to pursue this because your your 2012 Boyer Lectures, The Quiet Revolution, Indigenous People and the Resources Boom, painted a, an optimistic picture of the way Indigenous communities have been able to build enterprise mm -hmm. off the back of uh, the mining industries and of their native title rights and painted, I think, for many Australians, a surprisingly optimistic picture of how this might transform the opportunities for people in those communities. Uh, it was criticised in some quarters for being too optimistic, but you've very much in the last five years or since those lectures uh, continued to argue this case and indeed to expand it. Um, so underlying you see that Native Title really did change opportunities, at least for some Indigenous Australians. I know at the moment, uh, this, for instance, uh, where um, there are quite a few Native Title determinations and uh, quite a few, I'd say roughly 20 to 30 uh, major Indigenous land use agreements between Native Title groups and mining companies that, uh, that as a result of the opportunities provided by that scenario, there are over 300 Aboriginal businesses in the Pilbara. Mm -hmm. Now, when I first started going to the Pilbara, say 15 years ago, there were 16, 16 Aboriginal businesses. Now there are over 300, something like 312 tendering for one particular company, which gives you an idea that there must be more. And that's that's happened across the country. So, okay, let me just go back a step. Why uh, does native title give Aboriginal people these opportunities? It's very interesting. So what the Native Title Act does is protect native title by ensuring that anybody with a uh, proposal that would affect uh, an area where there are native title interests must 
notify the public of this and negotiate a future act settlement, either through a Section 31 agreement or an Indigenous land use agreement or by some other settlement means. So, you you know, as a result, you get Indigenous land use agreements, Section 31 agreements, consent determinations, and these agreements often lead to the developer of a project. It could be a golf course. It doesn't have to be a mining company. Uh, and golf, there are golf course agreements. Um, uh, provide some benefits to the native title um, holders or the native title community in exchange for security of access to the land. When you have very large projects with... Um, very large turnover, long-term impacts, the the agreements, which are always negotiated by lawyers, pr- provide both for financial and non-financial benefits. And so that's how the Native Title Act results in Aboriginal people getting a stake in the local economy. You're suggesting, aren't you, a, a potential time when Indigenous businesses become a core part of the rural economy of this country? It's happened in some places. In areas where there, the majority of the population is Aboriginal and, you know, the non-Aboriginal population is very small in comparison, um, it's possible for Aboriginal people now through native title rights and other rights, uh, other, you know, pre-existing rights such as, you know, state land rights legislation and the um, Commonwealth Indigenous Procurement Policy to end up being a key part of the economy. And what would you like to see follow? What are the implications of having, uh, for the first time, a stratum of Indigenous Australians who are sharing in the wealth of their region? Well, people who have to run their own businesses have to be pretty disciplined and they want to make money, they don't want to lose money, so they want a reliable workforce. And if Aboriginal people are going to work in these businesses, they have to turn up at work. If they turn up at work every day, they have to send their kids to school every day. And so you can see what happens. Very quickly, the gap is closed. People are earning money. Their kids are going to school. Uh, A a typical universal measure of uh, social parity, let's let's say socioeconomic parity, is the ability, uh, one's ability to raise $2,000 within a week for an emergency. People who are earning money and, and can save their money can do that. So suddenly you see the emergence of Aboriginal people in regions where previously everybody had been dirt poor, now able to demonstrate socioeconomic parity by being able to come up with $2,000 in their savings account. Um, And for the first time, Aboriginal people are able to pay for and have holidays. You know, it doesn't sound like much, but actually, you know, it's a measure of socioeconomic parity if if you can actually have a holiday. Um, and suddenly Aboriginal people are having holidays. They can afford to have a holiday. It never happened before. And travel, which is extraordinary. So in your uh, 2017 Dungala Kayela oration, there are two themes running through it. One is the one we've just been discussing, the enterprise one. The second is education, which you clearly see as central to closing the gap and to the future. And speaking then in Shepparton, you said, and I quote, there is no valid reason why there should be any disparity in educational outcomes between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this town. So you make that very specific around Shepparton, yet there is a disparity in Shepparton as anywhere else. 
How should we understand this and what are the messages that come through that disparity? Well, there are a number of forces at work, but there are the two big ones that I see are, on the one hand, people who were for so long locked out of the economy and in their heart of hearts believe that their children will never get a job because they never got a job, um, think, well, why should I send my kids to school? Everybody says I should send my kids to school because they'll get a job, whereas I know, in fact, that they won't. Well, you can see that, you know, we're starting to break down those, we, we, we are really breaking that, down those economic barriers in Shepparton. Uh, uh, you know, not you and I in particular, but, you know, the sure. community in yeah. general is yeah. doing that. There are Aboriginal people in the region now joining various workforces, academic, um, industrial, agricultural, administrative, but also, on the other hand, we see improvements now and I, I think I gave the figures on the night, improvements in school attendance and completion of, you know, critical years, uh, but particularly year 12, and then going on to uh, post-secondary education. Will The question is, will that those improvements overcome the um, soft bigotry of low expectations amongst um, the teaching workforce, the educational workforce, who think, well, what's the point of educating Aborigines? They won't even turn up, you see. So on the other hand, as against the failure to attend school, fa uh, failure to achieve educationally, you have the educational workforce um, mired in a, um, you know, an almost invisible form of racism that's based on low expectations and and all, all, in many cases, almost a refusal to educate Aborigines. When I first visited Shepparton uh, about 16 years ago, I ended up in some classrooms and I wasn't at all you know, surprised to see Aboriginal kids in the library in a special Aboriginal class sticking cotton wool on cardboard. And I asked what was going on and I was told that it was the special curry class. So, you know, you could see the apartheid at work there in a, you know, what was otherwise a good school. Yeah. So, that you know, that that's how it works. There are a couple of other topics I'd like to take you to and, and start with a surprising one. In 1989, you had an audience with the Queen. Yes. Why? And what did you learn from the experience? You'll remember the uh, Republican debate and the convention leading to uh, a referendum and that debate coincided with the rise of Pauline Hanson. And what some of us saw as a very dangerous trend in Australian life to become more and more white nationalist and isolationist. Okay, so uh, Patrick Dodson, Peter Yu, the late Mr. Jack Hoor, Loacha O'Donoghue and myself uh, formed a team to make an intervention that would put a stop to the white nationalist undercurrent in the Republican debate. I was afraid because of the types of questions that were being proposed that if Australia had an elected president, for instance, we'd end up with Pauline Hanson. It was entirely possible. She, she um, obtained 40% of the vote in Queensland. So it was entirely possible that we'd have Pauline Hanson as a president of a Republican Australia. So we started to panic because, you know, for many years we'd driven the human rights argument in Australia in relation to 
Indigenous people. And what, what if Australia ended up becoming a white nationalist republic and cut it itself off from the civilised world, the human rights community? So actually, uh, we thought going to see the Queen might uh, smooth out the debate, level out the debate, and it did. So when we went to see the Queen, the media was hysterical. She did see us. She was gracious. Mm. She was wonderful and beautiful. Uh, we had a very long discussion with her. And uh, when we came out, we couldn't speak about what we had discussed with the Queen because that's against protocol. But um, not long after we left the palace, the, the palace put out a statement saying that the Queen had met with the Aboriginal uh, people of her realm as she would with any other community of people in her realm. Now, that had two impacts. Put paid to the Hansonite monarchist kind of racism and also to the Republicans who were not prepared to deal with our issues seriously. So a very strategic intervention by the monarch. I didn't expect that, but as soon as I read that statement... I knew that she perfectly well understood while we were there. She's an extraordinarily intelligent person. Um, and, you know, clearly with her history of establishing the Commonwealth of Nations and the role that the Commonwealth of Nations played in bringing down apartheid, uh, she was very knowledgeable of world affairs and I think she had a good understanding of our history. Um, and when she her next visit to Australia involved going to... Uh, to Central Australia and having a very special meeting with uh, the elders and key leaders of Central Australia. And so, you, you know, you would have noted that after that, whenever she came to Australia, very special engagements between uh, the Queen and her entourage and, and Aboriginal Australians took place. Fascinating. So, of course, the referendum was lost, the Republic referendum was lost. So that takes us to the prospectively to the next referendum and you've expressed doubt about the likelihood of a successful vote for recognition of Indigenous people in a future referendum uh, of the kind that was envisaged in the Uluru Statement. Why are you nervous? Well, why did we lose the Republican referendum? Because the vote split between two groups. Yeah. Yeah. And it was split, and, you know, we can see it playing out in this um, same-sex marriage plebiscite or marriage equality plebiscite that, you know, we're about to vote in soon. Yeah. It's the same kind of strategy. You, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. So I'm just trying to remember what the strategy was in the Republic. Yeah, the question was awful. The question well, was terrible. Well, it didn't give enough information. It allowed people to argue that they didn't know enough about what they were voting for and therefore they could vote no. But we also had the issue of the real Republicans who decided rather than having a republic and then having the argument about the sort of republic, they were only going to accept their sort of republic and they brought it down. I remember arguing at the time and people saying, no, no, we'll have another vote in just a little while uh, once this one is defeated and then we can really have a proper vote. And, of course, we've never come back to it. That's right. So this is what is happening exactly. You know, Now you can see how that's, that's happening with the marriage equality plebiscite and with... Uh, proposals for a referendum on um, constitutional reform in relation to Indigenous Australians. I can see it going the same way as the Republican referendum. And it would be just disastrous, like the Republican, you know, 
referendum failure, we'll never return to it. Australians will never go back to that to that issue. Not in our lifetimes, anyway. And and likewise, if we lost, well, let's say a you know constitutional reform referendum on Indigenous Australians, we'll never see the matter ra- raised again. So, it would be fatal yeah. to the problem, and I would like to avoid that. So you've cautioned against going to a poll until you feel there's a really solid basis of understanding and agreement. The people need to understand. We need to have a majority understanding of a very clear question, and we cannot agree to uh, a referendum proposal that, you know, shall we say deliberately, is deliberately designed to confuse the public in the same way that the Republican question was. So a word of caution there. Can I ask, as you look back on a lifetime of activism and a lifetime of engagement with these issues, do you end an optimist or do you end somewhat despairing? Oh, a bit of both. Uh, So roughly uh, 50% of the Aboriginal population have a good chance of closing the gap or have already closed the gap, like myself. I can say that I have, I think. You know, I'm not rich, but I'm not poor. Um, have a happy life. But on the other hand, the other 50% of the Indigenous population has no chance of closing the gap. So yes, I've seen progress, but um, still half of our population have a long way to go before they can say like I can. My circumstances are such that you could say that I've closed the gap on most disadvantage. Here we are having a controversy at the moment about uh, Australia Day whether and councils declining to recognise Australia Day or to do citizenship ceremonies on Australia Day. Is this a first order issue and how much should we worry about this sort of symbolism? Well, the present Australia Day is divisive and many Aboriginal people rightly feel that it looks and feels like a celebration of genocide. And in any case, the date doesn't have much validity. But this goes to the question we were just discussing around the referenda, the, the risk that the major priorities for Indigenous people get pushed aside in debate by side debates like well, this. I know that many people think that this um, argument about Australia Day is, is a, a trivial issue as compared with the much larger issue of, say, overcoming disadvantage. Yeah. You know, the... symbolic versus the practical division of these problems. But there really is no division between getting the symbols right and getting the practical right. Aboriginal people will be able to and will become more capable of solving their own problems when they do not feel excluded. And it is the symbols that make Aboriginal people feel excluded. It is the way that many Australians celebrate the present Australia Day that makes Aboriginal people feel excluded. It is a celebration of a, you know, British occupation of Australia. And that makes many Aboriginal people very angry. And the way that it's celebrated makes Aboriginal people feel very much excluded and derided. So the symbolic import of Australia Day does have an impact on the practical because if I felt that Australians were respectful towards me and other Indigenous Australians and had Australia Day and didn't, you know, actually have a big party to make me feel like garbage, I would feel so much better 
about, you know, participating in the society. Now, for me personally, you know, occasionally I feel like, you know, shooting the television, but uh, mostly I'm, you know, inured to racism, you know. I recognise it for what it is. It's petty and it's ugly and, you know, it is possible with strength of will to to overcome it, to ignore it, um, to dismiss it. Not always, but most of the time. But for many Aboriginal people, they don't have the capability to do that. They don't have the, well, let's call them high-end social skills that I've learned, you know. I'm, I'm not afraid of white people. Many Aboriginal people are. I am not afraid of white people. But many white people want to make me feel afraid of them. They do. They try to bully me in all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways. And, you know, it takes a lifetime to recognise these patterns of bullying and microaggressions. And, and I actually, I, I think it's very important um, that we start teaching people how to deal with these problems. You know, there's lots of education about sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace. There's not so much education, or not nearly enough, about racist harassment and the racist microaggressions and the racist exclusions. People don't even know when they're doing it. It's well put and it's hard to argue with. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure, Professor Marcia Langton, to talk today. And likewise, Glenn, very nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to The Policy Shop. The series producer of The Policy Shop is Owen Hahasi. This episode is produced by Paul Gray and Ruby Schwartz, with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. Copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2017. Thank you.